Vaccine. It's week three of the Sean Glynis 2021 Halloween Spooktacular. So, of course, we've got Sean here. Sean, how you doing? Good. How are you, Steve? I mean, uh, I'm I'm just as enthusiastic as you are this evening. So, mm-hmm. good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you're probably riding high on the uh, you know the the happiness and the optimism <laughs> of watching Rob Zombie's Halloween too, right? Yeah, no, actually, I, I am really excited to talk about this week's um, uh, filmmaker, uh, which, you know, we'll we'll get into plenty, but I, I feel like it's a nice curveball from uh, what we've done in the past. So, yeah, that is all 100 percent, 100 percent. We've also got Adam Myros here uh, who just finished up Halloween Kills. And uh, how's that one treating you, Myros? Uh, you know, bring back Rob Zombie. That's that's what I have to say. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> That's my yeah. answer to pretty much everything, I think, very, at this point. Very true. I, I am disappointed yeah. our, our preeminent hellbilly Jack Eason bailed on the podcast at the last minute, but uh, we'll yeah. get through. Typical. Gave the podcast the old Irish goodbye. Uh, we also have a very special guest. Uh, he's the author of Shelter for the Dam, Darkest Hours, and he's got his latest fiction collection, Peel Back and See, uh, and that's going to be available at the end of this month. Mr. Mike Thorne is here. Mike, how you doing, man? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Hey, thank you. This is, uh, no, this is great. I don't, have we ever had a Canadian on the show before? I'm not sure. It's a good mm. question. Seems unlikely. So, uh, you're, yeah, <laughs> yeah, Mike, you're, you're breaking ground here, man. You're, you're a trailblazer, so we appreciate you. Um, wow. Well, I'm happy to represent uh, Canadian Rob Zombie geekdom any day. <laughs> is, is this what you it's, think America is like? <laughs> It just sees America through the prism of Rob. Everyone's talking about Rob Zombie all the time. I don't know. That'd be pretty cool. No, we we yeah. are the characters in a Rob Zombie film, more or less. Pretty much. I mean, I don't know. Like, if you if you go a little bit like northwest of of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, it basically turns into a yeah. Rob Zombie movie. There's yeah, no difference. That's true. Well, less knowledge of uh, Marx Brothers films, probably. That's also true. <laughs> also very true. Well, uh, so. This week, like we do every October, we're going through, um, you know, a different horror director every week for Sean's Spooktacular Month. And um, I think in the past, we've tended to lean on the classics of the genre. So, you know, everything from Wes Craven to uh, Sean's personal favorite, Joe D'Amato. And Uh it's kind of rare, I think. And I'm not even sure if you've ever done it, that we cover like a contemporary horror director, someone who's actually still actively creating films in the studio system. And yeah, I mean, we talked about Cronenberg, but, you know, he, he's not as contemporaneous as we'd like or, or contemporary as we'd like. Uh, but um, yeah, I, I think that this is a we, I don't know if we've covered anything from from the 2010s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure either. Well, and even with Cronenberg, he's kind of, you know, swerved away from a lot of that in, in the last decade or so, even longer. So. Right. Um, but yeah, that kind of brings us to this week. And we're, we're talking about Rob Zombie. And Zombie's kind of even odder still as a choice because I don't think he's ever been a critical darling. In fact, I I know so because, you know, going back, I'm like, huh, I wonder how something like Halloween 2 was received at the time of its release. And the answer is overwhelmingly not good, (laughs) (laughs) which is kind of crazy to me, but... 
Uh, yeah, he was he was never a critical darling. And then the other thing that I think was odd, too, is he somehow managed to get lumped in with the likes of like Eli Roth and Darren Lynn Bousman uh, and kind of slap with the torture porn label, which I find very odd. I, I think it was kind of odd. Then I remember thinking it was weird and and now kind of revisiting his work. I was, I was just like, what the fuck? It, it really doesn't make any sense. But he just kind of got thrown in with that splat pack uh, group of directors from the early 2000s. Yeah, I think definitely Roth. I mean, Roth is like an obvious contemporary because of their like association with Tarantino and they're both like big horror geeks. But mm -hmm. as far as like their output, it's it's not especially similar. And honestly, Zombie's career is more interesting because he, at least Roth, Roth had a big like original hit like hostile was a smash hit mm -hmm. and if you look through rob's movies until he was handed halloween really and after not at all i mean he's never been a populist director like this there's no point where he was in the zeitgeist and making big successful swings here they're all oddities mm -hmm. yeah no i i think that's that's a really good point and you know but basically here rob's movies they never they never made a gazillion dollars he was never a critical darling, but I think today we're going to, we're going to finally reclaim Rob Zombie. That's, that's my goal. So <laughs> I have a feeling Mike's been doing this for a while. Uh, I'm interested though, Mike, have you like, were, were you interested? Like, did you go see these movies when they came out and you immediately were attracted to them or was it something that brewed over time? Um, I saw, I think the first Rob Zombie movie I saw during its original release was the Lords of Salem, which I saw as a midnight movie, um, which was the perfect way to see the Lords of Salem. But I was a big fan of his other films before that too. Um, but that was the first one I saw in theaters. Um, but yeah, I've always been a fan of Rob Zombie's films and, and actually my entry point to Rob Zombie, and it's probably true for a lot of people was his music, like, all throughout junior high school, I had, you know, his CDs on repeat in my Discman. Um, so, yeah, he, he and he also, Rob Zombie, weirdly, was like my backwards gateway drug into Alice Cooper. So he he was a very oh, wow. formative figure. Yeah. For me in my um, in my adolescence. So I've always had a soft spot um, for his work. It's interesting you guys brought up this splat pack concept. Um, there's a really good book called selling the slat pack that's that's intensely focused on um market narratives and the way especially the emergence of the dvd market affected this um it really what was a, a manufactured narrative like any of these filmmakers i don't think there's a there's like a an intuitive alignment between any of them like i also mm -hmm. don't think Eli Roth's work um, deserves the label torture porn. Ditto for the Saw movies, whether or not one likes them, they're not, they don't really like align with that label. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I, I mean, just looking at the list of, of directors that are usually included in that, it's like, it's, it's really hard to find any similarities other than they made gory horror movies in a very specific frame of time. And uh, the, yeah, they, they probably did really, really well in the, in the rental market. That's, that's pretty much it. Like they all got releases on, uh, like Miramax dimension extreme or whatever that label from, uh, the early two thousands. 
Yeah, exactly. And it was it was this kind of emergence of the possibility of an unrated cut or a director's cut that studios saw a lot of potential for sales with. Um, so I think they, they kind of maximized on what this particular generation had to offer on that front. Um, and then they, they, yeah, they, they, they tried to narrativize them as a movement similar to something like, I don't know, you could draw an analogy with like the grunge movement or something, which when you look at it, it's a kind of a hodgepodge of very different artists who just happen to be making like rock music around the same geographical region. Right. Well, and I think it tapped into the same allure that a lot of the, um, like, you know, the band movies from the, from the 1970s. Um, had when I was finally able to rent them. So it's like, why did I rent uh, Nico Maristrakis's Island of Death? Uh, did I want to see a man make love to a goat and then stab someone in the face? <laughs> I, I mean, it, probably not. That wasn't like at the top of my list, but it, it came in a big chunky case that said banned in 72 countries. And I was like, well, shit. That's good enough for me. <laughs> so it's like when you're of a certain age, you're like, okay, well, if, if no one is allowed to watch it in these places, that means clearly I have to watch it. It, it must be important. Um, I, I guess I've never drawn out of that. I don't know. <laughs> I know. That's what I'm, I'm like, yeah, when I was younger and I'm thinking now, it's like if, if I was just walking through a store and I saw like a VHS tape that said banned in 72 countries, I'd be like, I'm, I'm taking this right now. <laughs> Whatever okay. it is. Glad it's not just me. <laughs> I, I think I, I'm glad uh, I'm sure we'll get into it. But like, I think that the selection, so I kind of came into this, like very intrigued, like my, my gateway to uh, Rob Zombie was, I mean, I knew of White Zombie, but uh, was Twisted Metal. That's where I really got into my head hearing, hearing the music over and over again, um, playing that game on PS1. But um, uh, I never really considered, I mean, the whole idea around this October project is, is like sort of the, the, the background is that I have no background in horror. And so it's like as an adult trying to catch up with like various parts of this very diverse genre. Um, and so I hadn't really considered like I was very familiar with the fact that Rob Zombie made horror movies, but I hadn't really considered taking that dive, especially as somebody who has so many blind spots within the genre. Um, and Steve, I believe you uh, recommended it. And I was like, oh, yeah, of course. Like, uh, that's a good idea. I know a lot of people uh, with my similar tastes are, like, really into uh, his movies. Um, and, and I miss them when they came out. Um, and so we picked the, these three movies that we're going to talk about. Um, and I didn't have a frame of reference before we chose them. But, but I'm really happy now that I've seen, uh, like, seven or so of his movies that we've chose this three because I think that they give a really clean um, look at his career, even though it skips over a couple of big ones. I, I, I think that um, it gives a, a, a nice abridged a look at, at, um, at his uh, filmography. Yeah. I, I think like picking one of the Halloweens might've been instructive, but I, I also think it's kind of a different conversation to discuss the Halloweens than it is to discuss Rob Zombie's career outside of them uh it's something we might we might talk about later who knows but i i think it, it was kind of a good call to exclude those from this conversation but yeah i i probably i also was definitely like a big fan of his music growing up i mean i was a new metal scumbag uh and it, it is interesting to look back on that now too how he really did similar things in his music to what he does in his films, which is he has a very particular set of interests and 
he's going to express those no matter the format. And that is, uh, you know, it's the true definition of auteurism, I would say. But it's it's uh, fun to look back at because, again, it was probably like the most edgelord bullshit era of rock music you'll ever encounter. And, and he's just out there making hit songs about fucking Frankenstein driving a hot rod or something. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I, as, as a fellow Munsters enthusiast, like I, I kind of get where he's coming from, but, um, yeah, it's, it's funny. Cause I, I you, you're right. A lot of, a lot of those bands that came up, I, I think white zombie was, I mean, they had kind of like a more of a psychedelic bent to him, but, um, it, by the time he went solo, a lot of the shit that he was doing, yeah, it was, it was just kind of goofy, but not in like a silly way. Like you didn't laugh at it necessarily. You're just kind of like laughing along with him. And that era, God, the late 90s into the early 2000s, ultimate edgelord era, uh, which is why it's so weird. That's like, oh, yeah, Rob Zombie's going to go on tour with Cole Chamber. Like, <laughs> what the f that's fuck. It's also it's also <laughs> worth noting that like White Zombie started, you know, early to mid 80s as like a noise mm -hmm. art rock band in, mm -hmm. in New York, you know, and like nobody liked white zombie when they first started out or by the sounds of it, no one really understood what they were doing. And I think it, in terms of understanding Rob zombie as a musician and even as like, a, as, as a visual stylist, both in his uh, aesthetic as a musician and in his filmography, I think he has to be looked at in relation to Alice Cooper. Like even the, the way their careers progressed, starting out in these experimental kind of fringe groups and then going solo and using the solo persona as this sort of shock rock horror pastiche uh, theatrical thing. Um, there's, there's so many weird analogies between, and even the fact that they're both married to women who like dance at their stage shows and things like that. Um, there's just all these odd like alignments between the two. Um, so yeah, just think about like the, the way zombies, Cruise a musician progressed is interesting too. Hmm. Well, I, I guess we should probably jump into the first movie. So, I, I, I mean, it makes sense to start where Rob Zombie started. Yeah. And I, I remember the first time I saw the trailer for House of a Thousand Corpses, and then I saw the poster, like the theatrical poster hanging up in the local movie theater. And I instantly assumed it was going to be amazing because, I mean, kind of like we discussed before, House of a Thousand Corpses. I mean, that alone, I'm, I'm buying a ticket. I don't care what it's about. <laughs> um, and it, it really does have that just like that, that complete like magnetism for, for a horror fan. And then on top of that, my biggest takeaway from the movie, and, and I, I think this is I, I didn't love it as much when I was younger, but I, it's it's grown on me significantly over the years. But my biggest takeaway from House of a Thousand Corpses is it really feels like Rob Zombie is kind of walking into it and he's like, holy shit, someone just gave me a bunch of money to actually make like a wide release theatrical film. Um, I'm I'm going to put every single idea that I've had for the past 30 years of my life into this one thing. Um, and it, it's almost just like this manic fireball of energy that is about to explode at any point. Uh, and it still to this day, even watching it back now, I mean, it's, it is distinctly a Rob Zombie movie, but also 
I don't think there's really anything else like this um, outside of, I don't know, the, the Tobiest Hooperiest moments <laughs> that yeah. you could have. But <laughs> as a contemporary filmmaker, I, I don't think there's anything else like it. Yeah, and there's a lot of Rocky Horror Picture Show in it, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny because I watched this um, a little early f- uh, in terms of prep for this. And uh, I immediately, like, uh, you know, I had seen the we did Toby Hooper a couple of years ago for this. And I immediately was like, OK, I, I need to I need to go back to the Hooper well um, before progressing and did uh, a whole bunch of them um, and, you know, rewatched uh some and it it's really it's really fun to watch them in tandem um because there's just like a joy in rob zombie's movies that are like clearly um influenced by hooper but in in such a way that that is not strained it's like it is kind of like the film of a free man Mm -hmm. uh this movie um but also somebody who just has these influences that have just been like brewing in him for a, for a very long time. Um, and the way that this movie just gets like more inventive around every curve is uh, it, it, it's really special. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think if, if you're going to use like some sort of like jumping off reference point, I, I think Toby Hooper's eaten alive is probably the best place to start. Um, just because it has this uh, Hooper's film has this kind of like dreamlike stagey quality to it. Um, and it's also just relentlessly bleak. Uh, <laughs> you know, there's, there's no, like there's no happy endings. There's no escapism. Uh, there's nothing like that. It's just like, you, you've got all these classic fun genre film references and like people that you recognize like, Oh, that's so-and-so from, this weird seventies thing. And, you know, you'll see like, there'll be a TV on in the background and they're watching. I mean, I think they're watching the monsters or something in uh, house of a thousand corpses. And you see all these things. You're like, okay, I, I get all the references, but it's not always about fun stuff. Like ultimately all of his movies are just about human failure and how the world is a giant relentless hellscape. That's completely beyond good and evil. It's just, awful people <laughs> so yeah it's a lot to take in yeah i, I it, what stands out is well i mean a lot stands out about this movie at the time because it is not something i i was that fond of that i mean i was 18 i i wasn't in any place to really appreciate what he was doing with a lot of this but um yeah going back to it now it's just wild all the like bizarre editing and like this does not feel like a theatrical release film it doesn't feel like something shot on film it's got a real sov feel to it it's uh it's an insanely bizarre film and he basically at this stage he hasn't developed like you know it's not like he knows he's going to turn this into some sort of franchise or anything but he he basically rips Chop Top directly out of <laughs> Texas Chainsaw Two and just slaps him in there with no changes at all for for Mosley <laughs> at, at this point in the game and uh, yeah it's just it's a wild fucking movie but the casting carries it and that is something I, I feel like is undervalued with Zombie is the fact that he is using these people who really didn't work for decades almost you know like you're not seeing sid haig in anything in in really the late 80s even into the 90s outside of really really cheap nothing movies um 
Yeah, I looked at his filmography. I was like, oh, Pam Greer movies. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's uh, But even like what feels like stunt casting now, but certainly wasn't at the time, just like, oh, we need uh, two assholes that people are going to want to see get killed. How about Rain Wilson and fucking... Uh, yeah. Uh, what's this uh, Chris Hardwick I'm like yeah yeah nobody I want to see get oh, yeah. more than these two idiots <laughs> exactly that's I mean that's that's exactly I mean you want to talk about if anyone ever questions whether or not Rob Zombie is visionary before either of those two people were really in the cultural zeitgeist he knew that they would be the most just detestable human beings alive so that's good, good on him <laughs> I'm glad someone brought up a moment ago, like the SOV quality, because, you know, a lot of this film was shot on video. And if you look at the the means of production within which this film was was made, it's a miracle it even exists. Like the fact that um, he was dumped by Universal after he did a, a test screening of, of some of the footage he was making. And they said, like, this is unreleasable. This is a moral vacuum, you know, and then eventually he ends up at Lionsgate. But in his time between studios, um, it, like he, he initially finished the film in or a cut of the film, I think in 2000 and it, it isn't officially released until 2003. So there's these long stretches of time where Rob Zombie is setting up these sets in his in his basement, basically feeding the actors lunch and shooting scenarios on his camcorder. Like Rob Zombie is one of the main DOPs for this film. So it, just in terms of the way it was made, like as a studio debut, there, there truly isn't anything like it on that well, front, you know? Some, some of the video footage too, it's it, the way he uses it because it's, it's not just switching between formats. Um, it's, it's very arresting. Like it really kind of like grabs you by the throat in a confrontational way. Um, I mean, there's all these sequences where it's just like, oh, here's Bill Mosley butchering people. And then he basically like looks directly into the camera in this grainy early 2000s video and shouts in your face. Um, so it, it, this is the kind of movie that can can be seen as maybe a little antagonizing towards its audience to begin with. And things like that really just just push it over the edge and make it something special and unique. Um, I, I mean, I can't think of anything off the top of my head that does something similar. One, one of the things that I um, kind of taken away from watching uh, this like six or seven movies of his, but I mean, it starts with with these first two that that has kind of ruined me when I watch uh, like contemporary horror movies that are like, you know, studio or whatever, you know, straight to streaming, whatever, um, is his embrace of sex, like sort of like just like distilling that or like, you know, putting that back into, um, this genre in, in a way that makes sense. And, um, it, it, it's not like, you know, shooting people from the shoulders up, like it's just, it's just bodies. And, and he understands like uh, a lot about that, whether it's the grossness or just like the plainness of bodies um, or sometimes the horror of human bodies uh, or non-human non bodies. Um, but it's just like, it, it's not like uh, an exploitative way that makes you feel gross as a viewer, to me at least. Like it, it just makes sense um, from, from just like, a visual standpoint. Yeah. And I, th I think, um, Rob Zombie really understands the attraction revulsion interplay at work within order. And, and sometimes, um, 
that's so anchored in arousal, whether that's arousal of fear or sexual arousal and the kind of weirdly porous terrain between the two. I think Rob Zombie gets that, you know, even if it's just an instinctive thing. Um, and I agree with you. There's, there's a strangely puritanical strain, especially in mainstream American horror now that I find um, really distancing. Yeah. So yeah, totally agreed on that. Yeah. Front, for distancing sure. is a good word for it because it, it does feel like uh, the filmmaker is keeping something from you. <laughs> Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's so vital. I think it was Wes Craven who described his first viewing of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and having this thought like, um, this is a filmmaker who might go anywhere. This this film is made by a madman. Um, and I think there's something to be said for that, that when you when you really get that sort of charged viewing with a good horror film, you you have to sort of have that feeling that you don't know where it's going to go. Right. Yeah. I think that's, there has to be that, that quality. So that restraint in contemporary mainstream horror, I think is, is to its detriment in a big way. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. See, I think one way in which he like seeks to evolve that Hooper style is his movies are not even vaguely concerned with even hinting at having a protagonist. Like his protagonists are his murderers. Mm. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. And I think that comes from like we were bringing up Hooper, but Rob Zombie, again, when you look at his sensibility as a filmmaker, it's it's really, I think, important to to look at his love of the Universal Monster movies, because I think he, he remembers as a kid first identifying with um, these monsters on screen. And I think that's maybe the foundation of his fascination with outcast mentality um, and outcast figures in cinema. So, um, and I definitely see that in his Halloween films, which I know we're not talking about today, but yeah, I mean like Michael in those films is, is a lot like the Karloff uh, Frankenstein in some ways. So. Yeah. And I think that the only way he pulls that off is because of his approach. Like he, his movies, because they use a lot of the same cast and the tone they seem to strike, it always feels like a bunch of friends getting together to make another movie. There's there's a warmth and a, a joy in these things that feels incongruous with the content in a lot of times, but it lets him get away with a lot, I feel totally. like. Yeah. yeah. Well, part of that, we haven't brought up his wife yet. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, she's certainly part of it. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, well, yeah, I, I, I like his, uh, his Easter eggs, too. Like, there's things you can count on in every single Rob Zombie movie. Um, and I think one of them is, uh, I, I don't know if he's ever made a single film where you didn't see Sherry Moon Zombie's butt crack. So, you know, <laughs> one thing you can count on. Uh, uh, I think Halloween too. I think Halloween too. She is, she's her ghostly yeah, butt crack yeah. does not appear. <laughs> a phantom ass. Uh, it's hard. It's hard to talk about House of a Thousand Corpses. Do, like it's hard to talk about that and Devil's Rejects for me after just one viewing as like separate things because they feel obviously a, you know one is a sequel but it, they feel like just such a like part one and part two yeah yeah for sure yeah there there really is like a lot of uh, like overlap between them it's it's almost like an Evil Dead one Evil Dead two thing where they're just sort of they're they're just kind of mashed together um, but. Yeah, and and one is Devil's Rejects is really it's just a logical extension of House of a Thousand Corpses, um, and it it just pivots slightly into kind of like an outlaw road movie. 
Yeah, before we pivot entirely to uh, Devil's Rejects, I just the other point I, I that really struck me this time around is that again we we said this movie was filmed in two thousand, released in two thousand three. It I feel like Zombie doesn't get an, enough credit for the sort of reinvigorated interest in grindhouse film and and stuff of that nature like this stuff was not in the zeitgeist at all at the time like this predates even stuff like high west the roost obviously it predates grindhouse significantly but this is he was treading a new ground here as far as this sort of revival And, and his interest did not align with what was in the popular consciousness at the time so it is it's interesting to think about how a lot of that stuff swung back and even now is it's getting boutique releases it's still very popular among horror fans but at the time it was it was pretty obscure and forgotten well i'm sure it's yeah. enough I'm, I'm sure it's enough for him it's satisfying enough for him to just you know i'm sure he's checking in on letterboxd uh <laughs> looking at people's rave reviews and going all right i i I made it. It finally caught up. <laughs> he often talks about the fact that, like, that Universal Studios now has a House of a Thousand Corpses theme ride. And he's he's like, it's so strange <laughs> that this studio fired me. And now they have a ride dedicated to my film. <laughs> That's got to be weird. Is, yeah. it, is it just the Captain Spaulding ride? Is that just... <laughs> like? I, I, I would love that. I mean, if so, I'm flying there right now. But uh. <laughs> it, it reminds me, as this film does, of uh, Hooper's Funhouse, which, I mean, the, the end of, of uh, Corpses is that, to me, um, 100% of just like that uh, thrill ride, like literally, of going through these various like corridors of just like frightening and inventive uh, sights. And scares. Ah, uh, but it's so fun. Sid Haig, man, in this movie, he is just such a joy. That whole intro is just fantastic. <laughs> like, where did he dig this guy out of? I need to watch so much more with him in it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What? Well, have you seen other Sid Haig movies, Mike? Like old ones? Mm, I have, but I'm blanking on titles right now. Yeah. I'd have to uh, look at my uh, letterboxed account. We were just speaking of letterboxed, that that thing. Yeah, I can't. I'm blanking. I mean, obviously, like Jackie Brown, you know. Um, and but yeah, he's oh, mostly. Yeah. Oh, obviously, Spider Baby, of course. That so that's a big one. Um, but yeah, often he was playing like the heavy or a background character. So. Um, Spider Baby is is definitely one of the ones that comes to mind where Sid Haig really shines in a big role. Um, oh, wasn't he in Point Blank too? I have not seen that, but I remember seeing. I think so. That's actually a blind spot for me too. I'm embarrassed to admit. Yeah. Uh, Galaxy of Terror, man. That's that's yeah. That's a real. Yeah, that's a big one. Primo Sid Haig moment. <laughs> <laughs> I, the thing is, is like, and again, to Rob Zombie's credit, like whenever Sid Haig had a chance to shine he would always shine but it 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 always seemed like he was he was kind of like a a background second fiddle guy and the moment that rob zombie's like all right here you go here's your playground do your thing he is just it's it's like magnetic and i i I think i think the the biggest (laughs) support for that is just watch house of a thousand corpses watch the devil's rejects and then watch three from hell and ask yourself what's missing and the lack of Sid Haig is just 
it, it is it's like a cloud that hangs over three from hell the entire time for sure for sure i it it, it hangs over the it feels like the production too it's just so much more lifeless it feels less this is the joy is gone from it and i think a lot of that absolutely has to do with sitting i think another thing is is we could talk about mosley too because mosley had a lot more of a revival thanks to to zombie but like don't underestimate zombies gift as an actor's director because she's bill mosley's even after his revival when he's in a lot of stuff he's fucking phoning it in and he's terrible but god he's fantastic in zombies films you guys were saying a moment ago that uh you see the devil's rejects as a um like a, a direct continuation of house of a thousand corpses and and maybe this doesn't um, contradict that, but to me, they're such like strong point and counterpoint pieces um, in terms of what they're doing visually, in terms of what they're doing tonally, in terms of what they're doing with genre. I see them as very different films, actually. So, yeah, that's that could be an interesting maybe point of distinction and and how we read the films that we could talk about. I don't know. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, wh- what do you think are like the counterpoints that it's setting up to to uh to uh corpses i think house of a thousand corpses is more um nakedly interested in uh homage in the way it's using um media references with uh like the television screens playing the monsters and and Uh the old dark house like echoing the events on screen um and the fact that it's all shot at nighttime to give it this kind of carnivalesque haunted house attraction feel whereas the devil's rejects has this bright sunlit openness um and he's shooting handheld he's shooting very close um it's it's more about the 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 expressions of the actors and particularly i feel like the motel scene centerpiece in the devil's reject that really sets it apart to me from anything in house um yeah i just see it as a very different film of course all of Rob Zombie's films are unmistakably Rob Zombie, but I just yeah. thought that was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if I, uh, like, I definitely, um, see that. Although I, I think it's, um, I, I can still see them as continuation is not like the same thing, but, but like on a spectrum, um, if that makes sense. Um, but, but also, uh, where, where, you know, he's, he's continuing, but you know, uh, just because it turns day doesn't mean he's just doing the same thing over and over again. Um, but I don't know, there's a, there's a joy in the filmmaking of those that, that, um, when you get to Halloween's and then Lords of Salem is, is not, it's different. The tenor of, of these two films and the, the, the other three, um, are certainly like, like different to me like um and there's a seriousness of of those other three that like i'm, I'm trying not to to say like condescendingly because i don't have a preference really um but there is there's a darkness uh that takes a different tenor in those other three that in these two um it's it's you know obviously there's a darkness there like steve was mentioning but um it takes on like sort of this effervescence um that uh is I don't know. It, 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 it's, it's just different, but I, I view these two 
I think, like I said, like on a, on a spectrum is certainly like, it makes sense in my head at least, but I appreciate that, um, that idea that like, uh, that, that it's offering a counterpoint and that motel scene. Definitely. When I think about that, this movie, like that's the thing that sticks out where it's just like, uh, it's terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. And for sure. God, I mean, if you want to talk about how like Devil's Rejects kind of sets itself apart from, from the Halloweens and, uh, the Lords of Salem and, and some of his other films, uh, the, the, the darkness of the whole, uh, motel sequence is, I mean, it's like, it's like overwhelmingly uncomfortable at times. Mm-hmm. And then and it's long. Oh, it's long. It's a, it's a yeah, it huge is. chunk of this movie. And the, the thing that really sets it apart for me though, is when one of the characters finally like breaks free and is able to like burst out of the hotel room uh, literally like wearing her boyfriend's face skin on, on her face. So she can't see. And then she runs into the road and gets blasted by a semi truck, which is, I, I, I laughed pretty hard the first time I saw it. I just, <laughs> so, yeah. it's, so it's, this, it's this moment it where meet, it's like, this, this is horrible and horrifying. And it's all, it's coming off the tail end of something that was extremely like tense and uncomfortable to watch. And then this woman is smeared across a Texas highway. And the first thing I do is laugh. And then as soon as that happens, I'm like, I don't even, am I supposed to feel okay about laughing at this? I don't even know. Uh, Yeah, you are. This is sort of movie that's designed that way. It is designed to have you hollering at the screen. You know, you, it's, it's interactive horror almost. It's, it's just, it is very joyful in its way, even though it can be at times, immensely uncomfortable in what it's portraying but it is it's just fucking fun everything about this movie is fun it will always be fun to me a lot of people seem to think it didn't age that well but for me i i don't care everyone is obviously enjoying themselves you could talk about the that whole hotel sequence, but it's also fucking broken up by Brian Posehn stumbling in in his head (laughs) it's like it's another good chuckle yeah it's, it's it's just a very seesaw with its with its tension but it it works perfectly i feel like that yeah i think it's it remains one of his finest films and i i would agree that there's a, a tonal pivot from house of a thousand corpses but it, it's very feels very deliberate it feels like he wanted to make uh, a texas chainsaw massacre 2 to his texas chainsaw massacre not, not that that's the best parallel for house of a thousand corpses it certainly is not in hoover's of war but uh but uh, I, it feels like he just wanted to do something totally different with the second film involving the same characters. And, and you can see that in the soundscape and the visuals and everything about it is, is a different approach. It still lives within the vintage horror of sorts, but it's, it's, it's going in a different direction for sure. And, and the Southern rock certainly establishes that straight away. Cause this thing is soaked in, in classic rock station nonsense and it, it rules. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, I think if where you think about devil's rejects in terms of genre, I think it's, it's maybe just as easily read as a Western as it is as a horror film. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, yeah, I think that's part of what, what really sets it apart for me too. Um, and, and I do think it's, it's, I, I love what you guys are saying about tone and the kind of, um, I think there, yeah, there is just kind of a gleeful, um, submission to the, the genre legacies and to 
these to the presence of these actors and things like that. But on the director's commentary, again, the motel scene always stands out to me. He says, this is the scene where everybody stops laughing. And even says, like, the cast and crew weren't laughing. He says, like, it took so long to film that there was this palpable tension in the room. Like, some of the actors were getting really upset. Um, there's this there's this uh, story that he often tells where Bill Mosley um, was just like, this is really fucking bumming me out, man. Like, going to this place. Um, yeah, and I guess uh, Rob Zombie apparently infamously said, well, whoever said art uh, has to be safe. So I think the the fact that this kind of I think it veers a little bit away from the fun in a way that the House of a Thousand Corpses never does. Um, and maybe following up on what Sean was saying, maybe in that sense, this acts as a bridge um, from one era of Rob Zombie to the next. I don't know. I think I'm just a psychopath because I find this movie <laughs> even more fun than House of a Thousand Corpses. I mean, they're both fun. Yeah, they're a blast, yeah. of course. But 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 that scene that Steve was talking about of like this you know, uh, escaping and then getting hit. I mean, it just calls back to that, like, overarching darkness or this, like, nowhere to escape that uh, is really, you know, present in every single film of his that I've seen, except for Super Beast, so, of course. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> We're not going to talk about that nihilism. <laughs> a gleeful nihilism is, is the greatest uh, description. Uh, that's, that's how I live my life, you know. <laughs> but, yeah, there is, like, sort of, like... Um, that that is uh it's a motif or you know it's a recurring theme and i find in it um i find comfort in it that like he's a filmmaker that understands that um there isn't an easy way out of the things that he's talking about uh you know or maybe there's no way out and you know we can talk a lot more about that with lords of salem but um it's very dark and grim but uh i find comfort in, in knowing that that is his perspective yeah i, I don't know man like I, this movie more so than house of a thousand corpses there's so many parts where i was just like spit take cracking up like i i had forgotten to one of my favorite scenes is just they're they're driving in a car and uh sherry moon zombie and sid haig are demanding ice cream from bill mosley and just chanting tootie fucking fruity over and over again. <laughs> and it's this total like throwaway moment. But it, it, it's fun because Zombie, he's he's so playful with these characters because he kind of he, he lures you in and he and he warms you to him with things like that. But then he immediately, as soon as you get a little bit closer, he goes, no, no, no. Don't forget what you're looking at here. This is never like an anti-hero story or anything like that. It's just completely fucking bleak. And he treats the other side of the coin here, the police, the exact same way where, you know, they're set up. OK, well, you know, we get, we're going to rescue these people. We're going to hunt them down. We're going to do this, that and the other things like, no, they are just as twisted and fucked up and insane as the people they're chasing after. And that's just. And you see that in the, you see that in the Halloween films is mm -hmm. too from, you know, every institution. Yep, exactly. Uh, William Forsyth's performance in this is fucking A plus. <laughs> Yeah, it's true in every bit of the scenery, and I love it. I love it. Yeah, I. Uh, this also brings Ken Forey in, and we'll see him continue in the next film as well. Which I he fits so well in Zombies Troop. I kind of wish he had kept on for the likes of Thirty One or something. Uh, Ken Forey uh, is he plays in this Sid Haig's brother uh, who runs the whorehouse, but he's best known for 
uh, Dawn of the Dead. Yeah, love Ken Forey. Love Ken Forey. He's the best. Oh, yeah. No, he's he's fantastic. You talk about a guy with, like, instant screen presence, too. I mean, oh, you know, yeah. God. <laughs> Between, like, Sid Haig, Bill Mosley, and Ken Forey, like, you, you could just wind up any of those guys, just let them go, and I'll watch them. That's, it's really, really fun. Yeah, all the scenes with Forey and Haig in this, this sparkle. Right. And again, it's like he just rolled into a horror convention to just pick people up off the, <laughs> out of the <laughs> lineups of her autographs and uh, threw them in this movie and they all fucking kill. It's just, it's so great to see. I, I love to see these people get work. I just really appreciate uh, what Zombie was doing at this stage. Because again, a lot of these people were just forgotten. They're, they're making a living getting autographs and they're fucking great actors. Yeah. And, and really, it's like all, all you got to do is, uh, you know, just give me a hangout movie with a bunch of misanthropic psychopaths. That's all I need. Really. It's yeah. I was just going to shout out Michael Berryman, too, while we're talking about the. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Love that scene. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Again, Michael Berryman, when he. <laughs> <laughs> him and Ken Forey roll up to buy some chickens off the side of the road and this like hillbilly asks them if they're gonna fuck the chickens and then he's like Ken Forey's like well why would why would we fuck the chickens why would you and he's just like look at Michael Berryman he looks like he fucks chickens it's like you know that's <laughs> and again it's like I know I shouldn't laugh at that but it's no it's really funny when you say Michael Berryman looks like he fucks chickens because he kind of does but he's great uh <laughs> God, this movie. Uh, yeah, D Devil's Rejects. Anyone who says it hasn't aged well, well, I, fuck them. It's, just, it's still hilarious. It's great. And I thought out of all the things that we were going to watch, I was like, this one was like perfectly just 2007, just frozen in my mind as this beautiful thing. And I was so afraid to watch it again. And uh, it, it holds up beautifully. So, yeah, definitely don't skip The Devil's Rejects. Yeah, I was I was in the same boat. I was like kind of I was kind of trepidatious going into this venture because a lot of these uh, like zombie himself means a lot to a specific time in my life. Actually, multiple times in my life, I suppose, if you consider his music and his films. But I was wondering, I was like, oh, boy, I don't I don't know if I want to unearth these things and let them see the light of day to day and depreciate. And uh, no, I, I'm glad we did it because I. I still, honestly, I think I appreciate them more now than ever and in a different sort of way. <laughs> oh, for sure. Um, well, I guess that'll, uh, that'll bring us to our, uh, our third and final zombie flick here. Um, let's talk Lords of Salem, which, holy shit. I remember seeing this in the theater when it came out and liking it, uh, but revisiting it now, I'm I'm pretty sure. I mean, Mike, correct me if I'm wrong. This is a stone cold masterpiece, right? Like I'm not I'm not missing anything. You are correct. You are correct. Yes. See, yeah. and he's he's a he's a published author. He knows things, so <laughs> that means I'm right. Uh, Rob Zombie's a published author too of the novelization of Lords of Salem. So, oh, that's shit. an interesting book to read. Yeah. That is, I, I had no idea there was a novel. Well, and it, I probably wouldn't have known anyways. Like if I saw that sitting around on a bookshelf and be like, what the fuck is this? Some like cash in on the Lords of Salem. Like, <laughs> yeah, no, he co-wrote it with uh, Brian Evenson and it's um, basically tr ca captures the scope of the movie that he had envisioned before it turned into like this 
one million dollar 22 day uh, shoot thing where actors were dying and uh yeah so it's incredible that the film turned out as fucking amazing as it is because the, the production conditions were it, it sounded difficult to say the least mm-hmm. so the book has like the more of the witch stuff yes from the prologue okay yeah yeah and a lot more just like bonkers supernatural imagery um to just like a scale that I guess the yeah especially the 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 historical period stuff there he just lost most of that you know yeah I I think for me this is like the the apex is the ultimate Rob Zombie movie and he kind of he kind of spells out his thesis here there's a line uh what what are the 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 witch ladies says uh, you know they're talking about the difference between destiny and fate and she says you know with destiny you can premeditate the outcome but uh, fate leaves you no choice. It's predetermined by forces stronger than ourselves. And that's kind of that. I mean, that idea drives so many of his films, including obviously this one where it's, it's sort of this inescapable thing. Like you, you know that there's this horrific, just nihilistic, sad, fucked up situation and there's no happy ending. And it's just, you mean being a disc jockey, right? <laughs> being a disc jockey. Yeah. And the answer is, yeah, having to interview Mortis live on the radio. Yeah, Clear mm-hmm. Channel is coming for you. It's destiny. Or did you mean, or did you mean living in Boston? <laughs> also, also a fate worse than death, living in Boston. Horrible <laughs> roads. Everything is like one way. It's all loop-de-loo around. Fucking awful. Um, but but yeah, just, just this idea that all these characters are just fated to just being completely fucked. Like, you know, there's no way in the devil's rejects that anyone's going to be okay. You even know at the end of the house of a thousand corpses, when that girl cl- climbs out of the ground and then we get the moment where she jumps in Sid Haig's, you're like, oh God, she's so fucked. Like there's never a point in a Rob Zombie movie where I think for one second, oh, this is going to turn out well for someone. <laughs> it's just, it doesn't happen. That's why I love them. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, which which is like uh, it's hard not to talk about the Halloween movies. One because I watched them very recently, but two just thinking about how these how he took a um, which you know come between uh, Devil's Rejects and Lords of Salem, but how he took like this this like very like you know monolithic IP whatever you want to call it, um, and was able to infuse it with with these ideas. And also with the, like you know these genre tropes like the, the like the last girl, but like have them like be so tailored to his own specific ideas, um, is really complex. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and again with the uh, I know we're we're totally not talking about the Halloween movies, but <laughs> I I love in Halloween too. He he does this great thing where originally in Halloween too it it pretty much takes place. I think it does. It takes place the exact same night as uh, the original John Carpenter Halloween film. Like that's, it just, it's one night, second movie. He just continued on from the end basically. And then in, in the later Jamie Lee Curtis movies, she's dealing with trauma and the effects of being stalked by a psycho killer all these years. Uh, But it's, it's still kind of like far off in the distance. And I love zombies approach because he sets his Halloween to just far enough. It's like two years apart from the original. So it's close enough that all the trauma is is fresh, but it's basically had time to just set in and fester. 
and just caused this inexplicable pain to its characters. Um, and yeah, which is, if that sounds awful, it's because it is, uh, but in the best way, because Ram Zabi's fucking great at that. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, and then it plays with the final girl trope too, because you think, okay, well, you know, this girl, she survived at the end of Halloween. So she, here she is again. It's like, no, she survived, but the last two years of her life have been arguably just as bad, if not worse than that entire night was. So, yeah, I think Halloween 2 is, a, is an intuitive film to talk about if, if, you, if you look at Lords of Salem, just in terms of the protagonists of both films, the way they show up in the film. So his Laurie Strode in Halloween 2 um, being kind of debilitated by, as you said, the trauma of what she experienced in the previous film. And in Lords of Salem, Heidi's um, kind of, uh, what's the word I want to use here? Like, it's just her past with addiction, particularly. There's a sense that, you know, she's she's struggling. There's there's the possibility that she could slip again. So having that sort of, um, yeah, psychological um, distress hanging over the protagonist from the beginning in both films, I think, brings something new that wasn't there in... Um, especially in House of the House and Corpses or The Devil's Rejects. They're just psychopaths from the beginning and they remain psychopaths to the end. You know, the, the other thing I really love about Lords of Salem is I, I guess this is one of the first times we see Rob Zombie maybe exercising a, a, a little bit more restraint than we're used to seeing from him. In this movie that where the symbolism is like fucking zombie priests jacking their dicks. Yes. <laughs> I know. I, that, the restraint. This, we're, we're talking in terms look, the control here is Rob Zombie. So we're just this is the zombie <laughs> spectrum. But uh I he he does my favorite kind of of horror where it's basically like there's mundane things going on. She's, you know, feeding her dog, she's walking past the bathroom. And in all these mundane, everyday situations, you just see horrific imagery in the background that the character is not aware of. And it's really, really like deeply unsettling. And maybe that's just me dealing with not wanting to see really old naked ladies. Um, but it's it's it really gets under your skin for sure. It must be nice to not live in an apartment complex where naked old ladies aren't walking around all the time, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's, I mean, what I'm taken with um, on a side note, I mean, it's not my 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 foremost uh, concern, but um, with Lords of Salem, and, and you see it develop in Halloween 2, I think, um, is a change in his, like his, um, his aesthetic development into more, compositions like like uh house of a thousand corpses and devil's rejects are very much about capturing a milieu and they're you know very deliberate uh in their aesthetic but um there's a different type of composition that's happening in uh lords of salem that that like i said i think starts to to become clearer in halloween 2 before that but where uh you get these like um these starker images and starker image and, and starker uh, symbols that are just like placed in a way where, you know, symmetry is a big part of Lords of Salem uh, visually um, in a way that just like it comes out of nowhere, kind of like the, the effervescence isn't there. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but there's there's like just more of like a studied eye here. Does that does that make sense to, to you guys? 
Yeah, I mean, I think what you're talking about is the fact that um, his camera direction has changed a lot. He's opening up the composition so that the shots are wider. Um, when he is moving, he's directing with dollies rather than handheld. There's, I don't think there's a single handheld shot in this film, whereas Devil's Rejects is almost all handheld, um, or at least predominantly. So that makes a huge difference. Um, and actually, it's interesting especially when looking at Lords of Salem to think about how much Rob Zombie uh, or how often Rob Zombie alludes to the influence of Spielberg on his work. Um, like even just think about the, the closing theater sequence and the way the light spills in um, and the nature of the composition, he alludes to close encounters of the third kind as a you know visual reference there. I think Spielberg shows up the most in Lords of Salem out of all of his work. Myros, you were you were taken with this one uh, on this this viewing. Um, how did that uh, manifest? I was. I, I've always really enjoyed this film. I I mean, it reminds me a lot of uh, Ken Russell. Uh, the Devil's obviously a major influence point here, I would think. But um, I don't know. It is interesting to see him pivot into more of an art house approach because it's he's still Rob Zombie. <laughs> the things I think. I held against the film on my first viewing, which were how fucking goofy some of the visual choices are in, in like the third act freak out, how it almost has like a fucking Beavis and Butthead do America music video fucking bust out it. And, and the fact that his wife is the lead uh, and she is a limited actress, admittedly. I mean, she's not a professional actress outside of his films. Um, this is a weightier role than anything else she's doing. Like this demands a lot of a lead actress if you're going to do it the correct way, the the big Hollywood way. But it's you know she's maybe not up to the task, and that that I held against it at the time. But now I almost find it more interesting because of those things. I'm like, it is so distinctly not just another A24 movie. It is a fucking Rob Zombie movie. <laughs> like his voice is very present. And sometimes that is bringing some dumb guy energy to the room where we, we have for no reason, Bruce Davison fucking Googling up ancestry.com to let everyone know that Heidi Hawthorne is in fact related to the other Hawthorne who was mentioned in the movie as if we could fucking connect the dots. It's like, yeah, is that dumb as shit? Yes. And it almost makes me love this movie more because it's very clearly Rob Zombies, even mm -hmm. though he's doing something totally different and more quote unquote mature, it still remains his voice and that it makes it feel more special to me. And again, I, I just, I think he's such a fantastic director of actors like Meg Foster in this fucking amazing. And another person who really has been forgotten by Hollywood and, and uh, she's got such an amazing look, always has. And she, she's, she's aging, being even more kind of visually striking and interesting to look at. And yeah, this, I, I just think this is a fantastic film and it's a shame. It's a shame it got so buried. I, I, to me, that's like the big conversation of Halloween is how it, it kind of robbed him of his reputation, even though it, uh, you know, those are his most profitable films, but I, I feel like it was probably a, a career mistake to approach those films because his his voice filtered through Carpenter was never going to be accepted by horror fans who were expecting another, you know, another Halloween movie. That's not what he delivered. And it, it, it harmed his reputation to the point where this movie 
barely got a theatrical release, like just barely. And it's really kind of the end of the line for <laughs> for him getting theatrical releases oh, yeah. and, and real money. I'm I'm pretty sure this was one of those. Uh, it's it's only out for one week, and we had to see it at 10 a.m. I'm pretty sure I went to see this with you, Myros. Uh, yeah, we saw it in California for sure. Yep, yep. So lim- limited window for that one, but shit. It, and it really is sad too, because I mean, if I look at if I were to just say, okay, what, like what are his his best films or most accomplished or like the movies where I just want to you know grab them and shove them in someone's face and be like, you have to see this. I'd say Lords of Salem and, and Halloween too. And like you said, I mean, those were kind of, I, I don't know, like his death, the death knell for him here. I mean, not that he doesn't have a career. He's obviously still making movies in the studio system. Yeah. We're getting the monsters, but to just go this long without a, like a, a, just a significant Rob Zombie movie. That's, it's kind of a bummer. Yeah. I mean, look at the, the third movie in his biggest franchise was relegated to, uh, a Tubi exclusive, I think, or no, a Shutter exclusive. Sorry, a Shutter exclusive. So yeah, it's uh, he didn't exactly get the the rollout. <laughs> Tubi exclusive not, is like not, that's like my dream film. Whatever a Tubi exclusive <laughs> is, they're they're real. They exist. Uh, but like you know, Rob Zombie's name has more cachet than that. <laughs> Sir, do not do not besmirch the name of uh, Tubi. <laughs> it's my favorite streaming platform. What? Before we get totally derailed, uh, but Mike, like, so um, as like a huge fan of Lords of Salem, like, what what is what is it about uh, Lords of Salem that that is so special to you? If it is like distinct from his other films, I don't know. Um, I think I like the way Lords of Salem is um, dealing with like gothic tropes and gothic structures. These this kind of anti enlightenment approach. Um, this again, I think by having a protagonist who we, who is maybe more, um, conventionally easy to sympathize with and then showing her as ultimately totally subordinate to her lineages and to her addiction to her, um, to her humanness in a way is, is more haunting than, than anything he's doing in his previous movies. Um, and I, th- I actually just think in terms of a horror film about addiction, it's one of the better examples I can think of. And I, I have to uh, disagree a little bit about uh, Sherry Moon Zombie. I actually uh, and, and this is totally subjective, but her performance here really does work for me. Um, oh, I don't disagree. Yeah, I don't yeah. disagree. I don't mean to say that. I just mean. It's not the performance you would get from a, a, a traditional leading actor. It's not actress. hereditary. <laughs> right. it, is a, it is a different performance than you would expect to see in this sort of film. Yeah, it's def- it's not hereditary for sure. Or it's not, I guess you could say, like, uh, she's not like Mia Farrow in Rosemary's Baby, which would be mm-hmm. an obvious <laughs> reference point, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And I mean, talking about the, the lineage thing, too, again, uh, it... it it, it's so connected to Halloween too, um, and Halloween of just like this woman who's like was a baby when when all the shit that is haunting her happened. Like she had nothing to do with it, uh, and she can't escape it. And um, uh, there's there is similarities in Lords of Salem. Um, uh, you know, it's distinct in its own uh, incarnation, but this this idea of being you know, this, this fate again, but, but being like tied to something that you just can't escape that you have to deal with forever. Um, and, 
Rob Zombie's acceptance of this person who has to deal with that is is quite beautiful by the end of the film. Oh, this movie, it just looks so beautiful, too. Like, it's a gorgeous movie uh, in a way that I don't really associate with Rob Zombie because a lot of his handheld work is at times just so jarring and almost indecipherable. But it is... Uh, this is not that at all. Like the color grading, everything, all this psychedelia. It's just there's so much stunning imagery in this film. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I like it a lot. I'll say that. I like most of the choices he made throughout the thing. And I, I think it, it wouldn't be as special of a film if it weren't made by Rob Zombie. Yeah, that, that like, what is it? Like second to last or whatever shot of her, like on top, like that angelic shot of her uh, high angle is just like such a beautiful uh like tribute oh yeah to this character that really i mean that's like absolutely gorgeous and it's it's again classic rob zombie move where you have this like transcendent like anti-mary mother of satan just angelically glowing on top of just a pile of of corpses of dead women who are descendants of the original salem settlers just glowing and you're like, God, this is, this is gorgeous. It's, you know, it makes you want to cry. And, but then you think about like the, what you're looking at. It's like, well, that's profoundly fucked up. And there you go. That's Rob Zombie in a nutshell. It's uh, it, it really is. It's, it's gorgeous. And it's just uh, deeply, deeply dark. Uh, and, and still there's, there's a little bit of his humor here too. Thank God. Uh, because, the like the morning zoo shit that's complete like any any of the stuff that was going on in the radio station i was i was like texting myros during it i was just cracking up because it's like he had to find his his one little window to infuse just a tiny bit of rob zombie humor in there and that's where he got it in well i mean this this movie is ultimately about how music can harm you right yeah that's it's uh it's just like when those kids played that ozzy osbourne record backwards sean what did they do? <laughs> I, I wanted to build off some of the ideas about that high angle shot of uh, Heidi on the the um, the pile of witches. Um, there are a couple things. I and since Sean brought up music, this just came to mind. Uh, think about the way Rob Zombie directs to music. Uh, apparently, he was playing all tomorrow's parties on set when he shot that sequence, and he's so he he's, he really is, has a special um, intuition. I think for pairing images with music. And I think that comes from his background in music video direction. Um, and another thing I wanted to point out is that that shot is all, you know, staged in real time. He didn't use any CGI whatsoever in this film, which I think is really interesting. Yeah. Right. Because like even devil's rejects has a few, you know, CGI trick shots with some of the gore and stuff like that. So it's kind of cool that there's none of that at all in Lords of Salem and you can feel it. Yeah. Uh, wow. That's crazy. Um, yeah. I had forgotten that all tomorrow's parties was playing in the film because I like, uh, saw the velvet underground doc like right after. So it kind of fused <laughs> I together. Right into it. I was like, damn, <laughs> I was like that, uh, that's, uh, that must've been an expensive needle drop. Say, I, I found it, uh, that shout outs for the, that stupid, uh, well, stupid. It is not stupid. Uh, the John Five thing, like the the Lords of Salem song. Yeah, it, yeah. It fucking sets the mood so well. It rules. Um, 
I was, I think the, the humor shines through to me. I was making my own humor and, and envisioning every character morphing into Rob Zombie because Sherry Moon Zombie's rocking a real Rob Zombie look in this movie with the dreads. Yeah. And Jeff Daniel Phillips also looks like a Rob Zombie insert in this movie with, he's a real fucking thick beard hellbilly look going on. <laughs> <laughs> like everyone is Rob Zombie. This is a story of Rob Zombie and Rob Zombie dating and being harassed by Satan. <laughs> I I also like uh this sort of like micro milieu that he creates just between like these three or four people these like three people really through their job of like this is what it's like to like do this stupid job in this like big city where you don't really see many people because you're working these horrible hours and you're just like, this is your, your social network and that's it. Yep. No, I mean, having a job like that, God, I mean, Myros used to work third shift, so you know, but I mean, basically, yeah, you, you, you almost live like in a, in a parallel universe because you, you just have this tiny group of people that you interact with and you're just kind of like floating through life. So it kind of, contributes to the dreamlike state of things yeah it, it was it's pretty horrible especially if you like make any effort to like exist in in the real parallel world there with with the people who are working normal human hours then you immediately become horribly sleep deprived and uh, unable to function and uh, it's great plus you're like all right off off work time to get some dinner it's like well we, we're serving uh Fucking egg McMuffins. It's like <laughs> sounds like grad school. Yeah, no, I, I I love that stuff too with the with the radio show crew, and I love the scenes with um with Sherry Moon Zombie and Jeff Daniel Phillips too. Mm -hmm. Um, that final phone call that they have, oh I think that's God. one of the best scenes Rob Zombie's ever directed, and it's so it's so simple. Um, the way it's shot is very very economical. Very straightforward, but just the performances he captures, uh, I, I think it's uh, yeah, it's a really beautiful scene. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah, it is interesting because I I feel the same. Jeff Daniel Phillips brings an interesting dynamic to his stuff because I, I saw the same thing in Thirty One, which is not a movie I'm that fond of, but I did think that his interactions with Meg Foster and Sherry Moon Zombie, it's just it lends. A certain note of emotion to the proceedings that you don't see in, in his prior work at all. But yeah, uh, that's definitely present here. It's pretty heartbreaking at the end of this film. Yeah. Because, and again, because it's, it's like, it's, it's not super on the nose as it would be in a mainstream American horror movie of this particular moment in time. But it's, it's sort of gesturing to the pain of being in a relationship with someone who is an addict and, and wanting to help, but knowing ultimately uh, your limitations or recognizing it's, that's such a, yeah, it's, it's a really strong, strong scene. I, I always find it really moving. And I've seen this film, I don't know, a dozen times, maybe more. That scene always gets me. The, yeah. I, I think he does such a, a beautiful job of, of exactly that, like walking that line of being like, I want to be this person's friend and I want to do what's best for them, but I like, or, you know, I want to respect their boundaries, but I also want to like make sure they're healthy. Like that's, that's a really difficult thing to, to, to do. And it's a, you know, um, it's a hard thing I'm sure to render on screen. Um, so before, before I guess we, we do whatever, uh, can you, Mike, uh, make the case? Uh, should I should I continue on my journey and do uh, Three from Hell and, and Thirty One? Are those are those films that I should do before I wrap up on Zombie? 
I think so. Um, I, I'm still not sure how I feel about Three from Hell. I only saw it the one time. Um, and, and as we were talking about earlier, the absence of Sid Haig does really loom large in that film. Um, Richard Brake, though, it's worth watching for him alone. Ditto for 31. I actually love 31. But even, you know, if the film doesn't work for you as a whole, just seeing uh, that face and and that character directed by Rob Zombie. And Richard Brake makes an appearance as the necrophilic ambulance driver in Halloween 2, if you remember. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> you get to see a lot of him in 31 and 3 from Hell, and he's fucking great. And you get like, uh, I mean, it's what it's like Malcolm McDowell doing his like Barry Lyndon look. Uh, yes. That's that's pretty good. So you got that going. Meg Foster. Yeah, I- Yep, Meg Foster is fantastic in 31, I think. But uh, again, I'm not in love with either of those films. I think they definitely don't have the same energy as his prior work to me. But I do think that I would concur. You might as well keep watching. Neither one is a chore by any stretch. Yeah. And at this point, Sean, you've watched El Super Bisto. So like, <laughs> you've already overcommitted. It's it Just finish it up. It's true. That would look weird if... <laughs> didn't get to those two, but I did did get to also I, I think I think our listeners deserve to know you watched El Super Bisto very, very early in your Rob Zombie journey. <laughs> like uh, upsettingly early for me. I was like, this is gonna derail everything for him. It's like the, you you watched like House of a Thousand Corpses, then you went, Oh, Super Bisto, that's what I need. I thought you were gonna say he watched it very, very stoned. And I was like, Well, that's that's probably wise. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Gonna, yeah, yeah so I that's that, no. you're gonna be about 18 beers <laughs> in and half asleep, and then maybe that one. No, I it, well sometimes All just right, for, cartoon titty. For me, for me, like when I go through filmmakers, it's always easy to bang out the ones that you're like, I have no expectations of. Um, like, and I think it's really short too. It's always easier. Like, you know, I'll I'll go through 95 percent of a filmmaker's. You know, I've seen you know. Uh, most uh, all of you know Paul Schrader's films, but won't see Mashima until who knows when. You know that kind of thing. It's like there's a weight that comes with some of those that is just you know it's not always as fun as just being like oh let's see what this mm. is. Oh, I know. I just I just had to find an angle to harass you on this episode. I haven't really had a good <laughs> one yet, so uh, you know yeah, yeah. Do, I, I do what I can. But and and you know what? This could be a total super beasto slander on my part because I haven't seen that movie since it was released on DVD. I don't know how many years ago. Uh, rent rented that one from Blockbuster, no less. <laughs> R.I.P. I used to work at Blockbuster. <laughs> oh shit. Well, uh, Myros and I, I, we single-handedly bankrupt them by exploiting their weird online service where you could like rent movies in store for free if you, if you had their, their disc by mail service. And so we would rent like 10 movies a week, basically. God, what a weird time in, in, uh like American like movie it was like BitTorrent but we had to drive to the store yeah I was like oh you have five <laughs> they had a plan that was like ten dollars a month or something stupid you get five movies and every time you took one back to the store it was a free in-store exchange so it was just like you could literally watch like 50 movies in a month for like ten dollars it's like I don't think this is the business model you meant it to be. <laughs> no, I'll take no, it. Not, not at all. Well, it got annoying too because it got to the point where you know Blockbuster is th- there's there's only a limited amount of of films really that are available to you at any one given time, especially during that era of Blockbuster. So we literally watched everything. 
I don't think there was like all the new releases were taken care of. There was nothing that probably like around what, like 2007, 2000 to 2009. I think we saw every single movie that fucking existed. So at a certain point, you're just like, well, I guess we'll watch Life is Beautiful again and just like start from the beginning. Fire it up. That one was always on a display God. somewhere. Like world cinema, it's just Life is Beautiful. Like, okay, there are other. Managers yeah, yeah. pick. It's all the Miramax, all the Miramax yeah. uh, foreign film. Yeah. yeah. Oh, God. All right, boys. Well, we got to wrap this one up. So uh, we like to do this thing called putovers, where essentially... Uh, you just tell us one thing lately that you've, you know, watched or read or listened to. It doesn't have to do anything with Rob Zombie or whatever. It could just be anything at all. So, uh, Mike, what are you putting over this week? What am I putting over this week? Um, I'm doing some rewatching for another podcast uh, coming up. And I've, I revisited Victor Halperin's first two films, White Zombie and Supernatural. Um, and they're two, I think, two of the maybe top 20 greatest horror films of all time to me, in my opinion. So white zombie is so good. Yeah. Isn't it fucking unreal? Yeah. 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 So yeah. Bela Lugosi, all hail. Those are, those are my two picks. Love it. Cool. I'll have to, I'll have to uh, check out the other one. Cause yeah. White zombie was like a revelation for me last year. Oh, you'll love supernatural then it's got, it, it, and apparently his, his later films are not very good from all accounts, I haven't watched them yet, but Supernatural still has that like masterful visual language, and yeah, it's great. Nice. All right, Sean, what are you putting over this week? Oh, I'm putting over a fun one. Um, uh, Lucio Fulci's 1984 film Murder Rock, Dancing Death. <laughs> um, Fuck yeah, yeah. Which is uh, which which is um, a movie that I think uh, I think people are kind of mixed on. Like I think it's kind of like a love it or or you know think it's minor uh fulci kind of thing um but i totally gravitated to it in a way i didn't expect um and it's just so much fun and it has this keith everson um uh score this like synth score to it that is very odd and cool and bouncy and it has this like uh mid-80s new york city aerobics aesthetic to it uh and it's you know it's very like it, it it's a giallo, uh, you know, but set you know, but made ten years after the prime giallo period, um, but also is like a rock opera. So it, it and and it's made by an Italian uh, in New York. So it just has all these weird things going on that um, I think congeal really, really well. It, it, it's a very fun movie, Murder Rock. I mean, it seems like it has all the things I look for in a film. So. I'm I'm definitely interested. <laughs> aerobic, aerobic wear. Yeah, that's, that's number one on my list. Okay. Well, watch Killer Workout then. You got to see that one. Oh, yeah. oh, yeah. I'm I'm more of a Death Spa guy, but oh, I, I also I mean, respect why not Death Spa? Killer Workout. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Thankfully, we live in a world where you can have your Death Spa and your Killer Workout. So, uh, Myros, what are you putting over this week? Uh, I don't know. I watched like eight fucking Rob Zombie movies this week and and <laughs> Halloween Kills, which isn't very good. So uh, I guess I'll put over the Halloween Kills original motion picture soundtrack because John Carpenter made new music for it and it's fucking good. So uh, you can skip the movie. Uh, but yeah, go get the score because it's fucking great. The end. Skip the movie. Bump the jams. I like that. 
All right. Well, this week I uh, I got off a of Facebook Marketplace, uh, like a, a one of those old stereo consoles from the 1960s. You know, the the really big ones. Uh, some guy was just giving it away, pulled it out of some decrepit old house, and uh, still works. Speakers work. The the turntable works. The radio works. And I opened it up when we got it home, and there was a record that was still on the record player. Uh, it was by this band called the Lords. Uh, no, um, it was, <laughs> 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 my wife like dropped a glass of water and was staring at the wall. It was really weird. Uh, no. So, uh, there's this, this band is called, they're called air apparent. And I had never heard of them before. So I put it on. I was like, holy shit, this is actually good. And I looked it up and I guess they're from like Northern Ireland or something. And Jimi Hendrix produced their first record and it sold like three copies and no one gives a fuck about them. But, uh, Air Apparent, they have an album. It's really fucking good. Uh, it's called Sunrise, uh, from 1969. So, uh, there's a track on it called Morning Glory and it fucking rips. So go, go listen to Morning Glory by Air Apparent. There you go. All right. Uh, Mike, thanks again for being on the show, man. And, uh, make sure if you're listening right now, Peel Back and See is available last week of October. When, is, when does that come out? Yeah, October 29th. October 29th. Mark your calendars right there. What the fuck are you doing? Buy the fucking book. It's almost spooky season. You need something for Halloween. There you go. Uh, other than that, if you are listening to this podcast right now, do us a favor. Look at the description. There's a link that'll take you to our Patreon where you, yes, you, dear listener, can give us money. That'd be super cool. Why would you do such a thing? Well, it'll give you access to a bunch of exclusive Optimism Vaccine written content as well as exclusive podcasts. And when you donate for any amount of money, I will send you a movie in the mail for free. What could it be? You don't know. It could be anything. It could be Killer Workout. And Mike, how would you feel? What if someone sent you Killer Workout in the mail? How would that make you feel? Oh, I would just weep. Yeah. With joy. That's, that's yeah, right. I would be so that's thrilled. Right. You yeah. want to feel something? Yeah. You want to feel something? Give us some fucking money and I'll send you a movie. Then you'll feel something for the first time in your life. Just remember that if you're listening right now. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, other than that, if uh, you have any questions, comments, death threats, marriage proposals, optimismvaccine at gmail.com, or you can tweet at us at optimismvaccine. And uh, Jake's not on this episode, so Sean, I'm going to give you the last word tonight. Uh, I'm trying to remember what the guy does in Despot, what he says in Despot, when his when his like stomach is getting ripped, when he's doing sh shoulder presses. That's all I got. To do.